Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. The Supreme Court is back in session, and we'll talk about the court's most right-wing justice, Clarence Thomas. Corey Robin will take up the questions, is he a self-hating sellout? Also, abortion rights. As the Republicans try to put women through hell to get an abortion, there's new hope now. It's called misoprostol. Katha Pollitt has that story. But first, it's been a noisy week in Trump world. At a rally in Minneapolis recently, Trump said Joe Biden as vice president was good at only one thing. Quote, he knew how to kiss Barack Obama's ass. To separate the noise from the underlying reality, we turn again to Sasha Abramsky. He writes the Signal Noise column at thenation.com. It's dedicated to cutting through the distractions thrown up by the president to focus on the more lasting impacts of what he's really doing. Sasha is the author of several books, including Inside Obama's Brain, The American Way of Poverty, and most recently, Jumping at Shadows, The Triumph of Fear and the End of the American Dream. Sasha, welcome back. John, thank you for having me on. So this is our Your Minnesota Moment segment, news from my hometown of St. Paul. After that rally in Minneapolis, Nancy Pelosi said Trump's remark about Joe Biden was, quote, beyond disgraceful. But the point of your column which has that wonderful title, Signal Noise, is that we should resist getting drawn into debating Trump about Biden's qualifications as vice president or his work as vice president. Remind us about your strategy here. Well, the idea is that Trump is a master at throwing up white noise, that he will throw out offensive comments, he will go on a tear insulting perceived enemies and opponents, he will say the most outrageous, bizarre, frankly irrational things. And sometimes that's really important. Sometimes it actually is vital to understand just how irrational the commander-in-chief is. But other times, all it does is it serves to sort of put this fog up around everything else. So really big things are happening. You're, you're getting daily this barrage of attacks on environmental regulations and workplace safety regulations and attacks on access to health care for poor Americans and attacks on immigration policy, this complete dismantling or attempted dismantling of 50 years of immigration policy. And all of this is sort of happening under cover of Trump's distraction. So the point of the signal noise column 
is basically saying, look, let's cut to the chase here. What matters each week? What doesn't matter? Now, that said, I should say some of Trump's tweets are so irrational that I've decided they actually are the signal that if you really want to understand what's happening in the autumn of 2019 in Trump's America, understanding that the president is tweeting out about his quote-unquote great and unmatched wisdom, that's actually important because it shows just how far the democracy has fallen and just how enmeshed in the cult of the personality Trump and his acolytes and his followers now are. Well, I sort of got stuck on Trump's tweet about uh, why he had invited the Turks to attack Kurdish forces in Syria. Trump asked, why should we help the Kurds? Quote, the Kurds didn't help us at Normandy, close quote, during World War II. So should we devote our time here to the facts about the Kurds in World War II? In fact, we do care about the Kurds and, you know, we should help the Kurds. There are so so many things wrong with Trump's tweet. The, The first is it's utterly irrelevant whether or not the Kurds were fighting on the beaches of Normandy three quarters of a century ago. That has or should have no bearing on current realities. Secondly, in actual fact, the Kurds were somewhat involved in World War II, so it's just factually wrong. But, you know, coming back to reality for a moment, you don't shape foreign policy and military policy on the hoof simply because you wake up one morning and think it's a good idea to tweet about Normandy 75 years ago. And if anyone was under any illusions that there was serious strategic thinking behind what Trump's doing, I, all they have to do is look at his ongoing tweets. He's, he's now followed up that insult by saying he doesn't care who helps the Turks, perhaps uh, who helps the Kurds, perhaps Napoleon Bonaparte can come and help them. I mean, this is a man who is just making it abundantly clear with everything he says, with every action he does, with every policy he puts in place, that human life means nothing to him, that he doesn't have any empathy with those at the wrong end of violence. And that it's all about Trump. It's all about Trump all of the time. And, you know, coming back to my column and this idea of signal noise, you know, this week has been particularly difficult because the signal and the noise are overlapping so profoundly because as Trump gets more and more irrational and as it becomes clearer that he's in really, really serious legal and political peril, that he's almost certain to be impeached by the House of Representatives. And I don't think it's by any means certain he's going to be acquitted by the Senate. I think he's sowing so much resentment in the Senate that if the Republicans feel they can peel away from him, it's entirely possible they will do. And the more that happens, the more Trump tries to obfuscate, the more he throws up these irrational sentences and these tweets and these brutalist um, comments in his public speeches, these sort of Nuremberg-type spectacles that he's now doing in Minneapolis, in Florida, in, um, in um, Louisiana, and so on. And so I think, you know, for readers, it's really important here to step back and try and sort of just separate out all of that noise that Trump's throwing out from the really important stuff that's happening on a daily basis. Well, if I could go back to Trump in Minneapolis last week, he said something else that that seemed revealing. He praised his favorite Fox News hosts. He said, Sean is number one. And he said, Laura is hitting it out of the park. But this is the noise. But behind this noise, there is a growing problem for Trump that has him agitated. Uh, tell us about Trump and Fox News right now. Yeah, the, the problem Trump has is the only thing securing Trump's position of power at the moment is the fact that he has this extremely conservative media 
that's essentially serving as state propaganda for him. And what that does is it secures his base. His base is getting its news from Fox. They're getting its news from Breitbart, from all these other right-wing and outright-wing outlets. And as long as those outlets stay with Trump, by and large, his base will stay with Trump. And as long as his base stays with Trump, a large part of the GOP is going to be intimidated into silent acquiescence. And so they're going to go along with him as he slides further and further into this sort of caricature of what a dictator is. Now, his problem is that over the last few months, Trump, uh, Fox has begun distancing itself. Not all of Fox's commentators, but certainly its news division has begun being more critical of Trump's policy approaches, of his um, irrational statements on Twitter and so on. And so when Trump is blustering about who's good and who's bad, and when he sent Attorney General Barr to have a private meeting with Rupert Murdoch in New York last week, and then shortly afterwards, Shep Smith, who was one of the only voices of criticism on Fox News, announced his sudden resignation, you know, it raises all kinds of questions. Because theoretically, we live in a country without a state propaganda apparatus. And theoretically, the media is supposed to have a degree or two or three or four of separation from the political leadership. What's become absolutely clear is that Trump doesn't believe in that separation. In, in the same way as the religious right doesn't believe in the separation of church and state, Trump really doesn't believe in the separation of media and state. He sees the media as either being the enemy of the people if it criticizes him, or as being his cheerleader if it stays in his corner. He sees the media's only role as being propaganda for him. And so Trump's problem is that it's increasingly hard to corral the propagandists. It's increasingly hard to get Rupert Murdoch to stay on board. Last thing, impeachment. A few weeks ago, Trump said Congressman Adam Schiff, who heads the impeachment inquiry in the House, should be, quote, arrested for treason. Now, in a lot of ways, this is just Trump being Trump. He exaggerates. He's a little crazy. But it seems to me this treason talk is kind of dangerous. It's more than mere noise. Do you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, Trump in the last few weeks has quite clearly, albeit in coded terms, urged violence against the whistleblower who blew the, blew the lid off the Ukraine phone call. He's quite clearly advocated violence against Adam Schiff. He's accused Nancy Pelosi of treason. His campaign manager, um, Brad Pascal, has said the entire impeachment inquiry is, quote unquote, a seditious conspiracy. And then we had this story that came out the other day of this just ferocious video that was shown at a Trump resort in Miami, this video that purported to show Trump gunning down and otherwise executing through blowtorches and knives and everything else political enemies, media enemies, and activist organizations. And when you look at all of this, you know, on one level, again, yes, it's just bluster, it's over the top, it's cartoonish, you know, how could anyone take it seriously? But the thing is, in this political climate, people do take it seriously. We know, we know that. We, we, we've had supporters of Trump in the last year who have sent pipe bombs to journalists. We've had people who have massacred Many, many people, for example, the um, massacre in New Zealand, where the perpetrators have said that they looked to Trump as a sort of motivating factor. We had the ghastly events in Texas where a man drove for hours specifically so that he could gun down Latino shoppers. And again, that person was looking to Trump for inspiration. So, 
you know, this idea that when Trump talks about treason, when he talks about sedition, when he talks about violence against the media, that it's all somehow just said in jest, that it's all noise. It's actually not true. It's very much part of the signal. It's part of the way that we have to understand the moment that we're living in. Sasha Abramsky writes the Signal Noise column for TheNation.com twice weekly. Sasha, thanks for talking with us today. Always a pleasure, John. Thanks so much. Last week, the Supreme Court began its new term, and the longest-serving justice there is Clarence Thomas. He's beginning his 29th year on the court, and of course, he's also the most right-wing, and of course, he's also the only black person on the court. He's the man who's the most committed opponent of affirmative action, the biggest defender of restrictions on the right to vote. He's to the right even of the other conservative justices on stripping the protections of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. He's a big defender of the police and the prisons. He opposes limits on campaign spending. And he officiated at the third marriage of Rush Limbaugh. We think of him as a black man who does the bidding of the Republicans. So is he self-hating? Is he a sellout or what? For that, we turn to Corey Robin. He says we don't understand Clarence Thomas. He's not a sellout, and he's not a self-hating black man. He's something else. Corey is a professor of political science at Brooklyn College and the City University of New York Graduate Center. He's a contributing editor at Jacobin Magazine. He's also written for the New York Times op-ed page, The New Yorker, Harper's, and The Nation. His last book was The Reactionary Mind. Now he's got an important new book out. It's called The Enigma of Clarence Thomas. Corey Robin, welcome back. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be back. Well, you say there's a secret to Clarence Thomas, one that's been hiding in plain sight. What is it? It's that he's a conservative black nationalist. Um, he, When Clarence Thomas was younger, he was actually a black nationalist on the left um, for for a, a number of years. And then as he made his migration to the right in the mid-1970s, um, although he adopted some new beliefs, he never really gave up the, some of the core tenets of his black nationalism of his younger years. And in particular, he never gave up first the belief that black people have a set of interests and uh, a kind of destiny in America that simply cannot be accommodated by mainstream uh, white institutions. Uh, secondly, that black people should, as a result, look to their own uh, communal institutions and modes of self-organization um, and try to find a way forward, or at least not a way backwards, um, that lies outside of the sort of mainstream white institutions. Okay, his jurisprudence at the court is defined by this understanding of the interests of black people, but then... Why doesn't he think black people should fight for those interests through voting, through winning political power? So I think it has a lot to do with when he came to political consciousness. Um, he comes uh, he comes to consciousness um, politically in the in the waning days of the black freedom struggle, when there is an increasing sense of defeat uh, that uh, that politics is really a kind of closed path uh, to to black people. That white people will always win in the end if you try to achieve your aims politically. So, you know, from, from the beginning, he really has eschewed a kind of, of a political path. 
And he thinks things like voting, all the kind of conventional instruments of political progress or political advance are really a misbegotten enterprise that they will not do very much for black people and may actually positively harm black people simply by reinforcing the power of white people. So he, so even though he's very dedicated uh, in his mind to the instruments of black people, he believes that politics, the state, collective action of a conventional sort, that none of these are um, adequate instruments or avenues for black advance. So what about what we called the Obama coalition? Black people join an alliance with other people of color, with young people, with women. In 2008, that coalition got more votes than any presidential campaign in history, and it elected America's first black president. Uh, Clarence Thomas always voted against the initiatives of America's first black president. What's his problem with the Obama coalition? I mean, I think he would point to the fact that uh, black interests weren't really significantly uh, advanced by that administration. Now, there's all kinds of reasons one can come up with for why that is. I don't I'm not interested in litigating that. Um, but I think he would point to things that black home ownership rates uh, are now lower than they were uh, when Obama took power. Um, and, you know, the black wage continues to decline. Uh, I mean, sorry, continues to be short of the white wage and so on and so forth. So um, I think things like the election of black politicians, you know, I don't think really would impress him. And I should say this is very much in keeping with a lot of the realization that black activists had in the early 1970s. Um, you know, at the things like the Gary Convention, it was you know very clear to many people that uh, in, in 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 the early 70s that simply a lo- you know voting for black uh, officials wouldn't necessarily do that much to transform um, the sort of the vast estate of black people in the United States. And what exactly is his criticism of affirmative action? Didn't he benefit from affirmative action? Yeah, and you know he admits that he benefited from it, and I think. Uh, his criticism begins in part from that, which is that he uh, has felt that white people have constantly reminded him um, of the fact that that he benefited from affirmative action. And so his experience at Yale Law School was a very formative experience for him. And Thomas was really used to the experience of kind of over white uh, racism that's, you know, the the conventional sort. And at Yale Law School, he encountered a different kind of racism, what we might call, you know, white liberal racism, whereby the white person um, would do something on behalf of black people, like affirmative action, and then would remind black people that they were only there because of the beneficence of white people. And so for him, affirmative action is kind of a poison pill um, that uh, changes the face of white racism slightly. Uh, but adds this kind of, you know, sort of paternalistic element to it um, that ends up in the minds of white people, confirming that black people can only advance with their help. And he says this applies to people, whether, black people, whether they get, you know, do advance under affirmative action or whether they don't advance under affirmative action. It taints the achievements of all black people, essentially, much in the way that both segregation and enslavement, whether people were black people were free or enslaved, uh, tainted all black people, as he, as Thomas puts it, quoting Plessy versus Ferguson, with a badge of inferiority. Uh, so it's a very different account of affirmative action from the kind that you find in many conventional conservative accounts. And he's also very interesting on the Second Amendment debates. Uh, uh, of course, uh, gun rights we see as the cause of uh, white nationalist militias who have these 
fantasies about uh, rebelling against the socialist government in the United States, uh, Clarence Thomas uh, votes the same way as the conservatives on the definition of the Second Amendment, but for different reasons. Yeah, absolutely. So Thomas really roots his understanding of the Second Amendment um, in the experience, uh, in, in, the, in the long struggle over emancipation of slaves, of enslaved African Americans, uh, and then the sort of retrenchment against that uh, in the aftermath of Reconstruction. Um, he sees at the heart of the struggle uh, in emancipation, um, one of the key desires that black people had was to be able to arm themselves against white people. And he reads the 14th Amendment and the Second Amendment in tandem as establishing that as a fundamental right for black people. Um, and it's a fascinating decision. It's the McConnell, McDonald versus uh, Chicago decision. And I mean, it's, it may be, I don't know this for sure, but my hunch is it may be the only decision, I'm sorry, opinion in which a Supreme Court justice is affirmatively citing from Herbert Apthecker's work <laughs> on slave revolt as opposed to Herbert Apthecker as a protagonist in a case. Um, and, uh, you know, Thomas draws extensively from Apthecker's work and just shows, again, how important um, black self-defense and black self-arming was to the, to the project of black freedom. And, and he closes that, that opinion with this very resonant image of, a young, uh, of an older man re remembering when he was a younger boy, a black man, uh, remembering as a younger boy um, uh, his father protecting the family with a gun against a kind of uh, a marauding white mob coming to the house. And, you know, Thomas, you almost, I can't remember the specific language, but it almost uses the language, he says it's something like an image of salvation. And, you know, it, this is, if, you know, when you know the history of sort of black radicalism, um, this is a very resonant image on, on the black left of black men arming themselves. Um, Elaine Brown, in fact, wrote a whole song about this uh, that's not very well remembered. Elaine Brown, who ended up heading the Black Panthers, um, uh, talking about black men arming themselves and that really being the symbol of freedom. And Thomas does the, almost the exact same thing in this decision defending gun rights. Okay, so if for Clarence Thomas, politics, voting, is not the way blacks can advance their interests and protect their communities, what does Clarence Thomas think black communities should do? He very much believes uh, that black communities should focus their attentions on the economy, uh, particularly on the institutions of capitalism. Uh, now, I should say that um, when Thomas comes to this idea in the mid-1970s, there's already a firmament, on, even on the black left, the black nationalist left, black power groups, uh, you know, away from politics, away from the state, towards experimenting with the economy and experimenting even with capitalist institutions. And so that's the milieu in which he comes to these ideas and starts moving to the right. Um, there's also an autobiographical element to this, I'm sorry, a biographical element to this for Thomas, which is that his grandfather, who is a very formidable and important influence on his life, on Thomas's life, um, was a kind of a black, um, you know, a business owner, and built up, you know, quite a business for himself, and became a pillar of the Savannah black community. Um, and Thomas really sees black men, black patriarchs, 
um, amassing wealth um, in niches of the economy that are not uh, addressed by white people, uh, and then being able through the amassing of wealth in those niches of the economy, a black economy, uh, to be able to distribute those resources to other black people. And that for Thomas um, is really the path Again, I wouldn't say forward. Thomas doesn't have really a vision of forward movement, but it's certainly a vision of black maintenance, let's say, um, that you organize yourselves through the market um, separately from white people, amass wealth, uh, and, and kind of distribute it to the black community. And, of course, we have to talk about Anita Hill. You say that confrontation is what you call the Rosetta Stone of Thomas's understanding of the Constitution. Please explain. So Thomas has, at the heart of his vision of the Constitution, and, I, and he has two different visions of the Constitution, one I call the white Constitution, one I call the black inst- Constitution. But at the heart of both visions is this figure of the black male patriarch. Thomas has said that the salvation of the black race depends upon black men. And in his vision of a Constitution, it's, it's almost an ancient idea of a Constitution, not simply as a legal body of rules, or kind of basic rules of, uh, of the government, but really is the kind of the constitution of the social order. That's really how he understands the constitution. And at the heart of the social order that he wants to create are black men. Um, and it's, again, it's a very patriarchal vision. Um, there is very little space in that vision for black women. The role of black women is to essentially be the dependence of black men. Um, and, uh, Insofar as they, black women appear in any other guise um, in, in his vision, they appear as kind of traitors, people who are dangerous because they ally with white liberals. Uh, and so Thomas had been developing this theory um, throughout the 1980s before he comes onto the court. And you see it in his, in his writings and his speechings, the centrality of black men, um, the sort of black women being kind of off the stage as sort of passive, uh, passive recipients of black male um, uh, uh, benevolence. And insofar as women, black women play any different role, as I say, they're kind of treacherous figures. Um, and, but, but creating black male authority is very important. And then along comes Anita Hill. And um, as I say in the book, you know, it's, I think, evident to anybody who's a dispassionate observer that Anita Hill was telling the truth uh, and that Thomas was lying when he denied um, sexually harassing her in the way she claimed. However, in his response to Hill, when he sort of has that um, outburst about being the victim of a high-tech lynching, um, comparing uh, Democratic senators to the KKK uh, and other white supremacist groups, I think most people who know Thomas well would say that in many ways this was a very authentic moment for him where he was telling his truth. He was lying about what he had done to Anita Hill, but he does really see a black woman in alliance with white liberal groups as a very dangerous figure because what she will do is undo black male authority. And when black male authority is undone, um, the whole black community crumbles with it. So in a way, the Anita Hill confrontation was an extraordinarily revealing moment, not simply of what Thomas had done in his character and all the rest of it, but also of what he fundamentally believes, which is that the place for black women is to be, as I said, the kind of passive recipient of black male largesse and benevolence. And insofar as black women do anything else, 
step outside of that role, they are undermining black male authority and with that, the black community. Okay, let's connect the dots here. Clarence Thomas's position on the law come from his understanding of history and politics, but how does that lead him to ally with Alito and Roberts and Gorsuch and the horrible Brett Kavanaugh? These people are not black nationalists, but they sign yeah. at least some of his opinions. Right. So I think there's a couple of you know ways of looking at this. Um, the first is that one of the things Thomas develops early on is a theory of what I call racial sincerity. Thomas does not believe that racism, white racism, can be eliminated. He believes it's a permanent, fundamental feature of American life, and it's going nowhere. Um, the most that can be hoped for, he believes, is that white people should be honest um, about their racism. And in this respect, he echoes a lot of the, the, the sentiments that you see in someone like Malcolm X or Marcus Garvey, who, both of whom saw um, the kind of honest, racist white person um, as in some ways a less threatening figure than the more duplicitous white person who hides their racism. And Thomas has been very upfront about this. And in the 1980s, when he's working in the administration, Reagan administration, and is accused, you know, he say, they say you're working with racists, he doesn't deny that. He says at least they're honest in their racism. So I think that's the first thing is that he thinks there's black people have much more to be gained by the racial candor and racial honesty of white conservatives than they do by people who profess, you know, benign intentions or positive intentions towards black people. That's the first thing. And, if, and, the, and, and then the second thing is, goes back to this question about politics in the state versus the market. I think in the end, he believes this is a strategic alliance and that the Republican Party is much, much more likely to create the kinds of institutions, uh, the kind of society in which black people can separate um, and find their own destiny apart from white people. Uh, and so I think for him, this is a, is a kind of a, an alliance of convenience. What's interesting, though, and having said all that, is how often people like Alito, Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, and Roberts break with Thomas when he starts venturing into this territory. So we saw this last uh, year in the, Fla uh, the Flowers versus Mississippi case, which was about uh, the role of choosing jurors, you know, all-white juries. Uh, Gorsuch is the only person who even joins Thomas's opinion. And then there's a lengthy part of the opinion where Thomas starts saying racism is endemic in jury trials. And the best hope that black people have in a jury trial is having the right to strike down white jurors, regardless of whether they're racist or not, simply because they're white. And Gorsuch flees at that very moment. And you see this over and over and over again in many decisions where his conservative brethren, they're fine with the outcome of, the, of, of his opinions. They are not happy with how he gets there. And he, bre he breaks with them on gun rights as well. Nobody joins his opinion on gun rights. Um, this happens time and time and again. Uh, so what's fascinating to me um, is how often they don't join him as opposed to how often they do join him. Last question. Does Clarence Thomas have any support in black America for his version <laughs> of conservative black nationalism? It's, a, it's an excellent question. Um, you know, most black people really don't like Clarence Thomas. Um, and he knows this and has talked about this. And I think he views his particular jurisprudence and philosophy as kind of a fugitive vision that he hopes one day black people will come to adopt. But he understands full well that they currently don't. However, what has been interesting to me about the response to this book, and I hear this a lot from uh, uh, younger black people, 
is how often they will say when you get into these beliefs and describe what Thomas is saying, you, you sound like you're describing my father or my grandfather or my grandparents or my, or my parents. Um, and so I do think, um, even though I don't see any kind of mass movement among African-Americans towards a Clarence Thomas vision, uh, you know, jurisprudence or towards Clarence Thomas, I should say, I think he's you know, viewed as a traitor uh, in the black community. Um, I think once you get beyond some of those reactions, uh, my sense is that there are definitely a lot of beliefs that Thomas articulates that are quite resonant in the black community, um, particularly the, you know, the intensity of his racial pessimism, his belief in the ineradicability of, 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 of white racism, um, some of these ideas about black self-arming. Um, you know, African-Americans are now under Trump arming themselves more than they have been before. Uh, this is very much in keeping with Thomas's view of the world. So I think, at, at, you know, in the deeper registers, to, uh, 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 to, to use Ellison's phrase, um, uh, I think there's more resonance there than we might think. Okay, you've convinced me. Clarence Thomas is a conservative black nationalist who believes America is a hopelessly racist country, and yet this is the man Donald Trump has called his favorite justice. What do you make of that? So this is a really tricky and, um, you know, delicate question. Um, Historians have long recognized that there is a certain kind of traffic or uh, ambient fraternity, to use a phrase of Thomas's from a different context, between a certain kind of white nationalism and a certain kind of black nationalism. Uh, Marcus Garvey you know, said the, the Klansman is the best friend of the black man. Uh, again, Malcolm X sometimes spoke this way. And I think they're, they, uh, you know, in Trump's white nationalism, uh, human beings are organized into kind of racial groups. Um, and they, you know, there's a kind of ineradicable conflict between those groups. And I think in a certain way, Thomas's racial pessimism um, is very much in keeping uh, with that view um, and, and saying that black people have to kind of find their own way and their own path apart from white people, I think is a view that uh, in many ways sits quite comfortably with Donald Trump's view of the world. Corey Robin, his new book is The Enigma of Clarence Thomas. Thank you, Corey. This has been totally fascinating. Thank you very much. Really enjoyed it. Abortion rights advocates have been warning about the end of Roe for decades, but that seems more likely this week than it did a few months ago because the new Supreme Court term, which began last week, includes the court taking up its first abortion case since Brett Kavanaugh replaced Anthony Kennedy. How bad could things get? And are there any reasons for optimism? For comment, we turn to Katha Pollitt, Of course, she's a poet, essayist, and award-winning columnist for the nation. Her most recent book is Pro-Reclaiming Abortion Rights. It's out now in paperback. Katha, welcome back. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Isn't there a lot of support for abortion rights these days? Well, there is, and it's been growing. 77% in a June NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll, 77% of Americans support Roe, even if you know, some of those would like to see more abortion restrictions. And, you know, people don't understand this. They think that if you say, oh, I think abortion is wrong, that it means you want abortion to be illegal. 
But those are not the same at all. There are many things we think are wrong that we think should be legal. And Americans are able to make this distinction, but pollsters sometimes (laughs) are not. So Republicans face the situation where abortion rights are widely popular in the United States, and yet their base wants to outlaw abortion. So they have come up with a strategy for for dealing with this. You say the strategy is to put women through hell to get an abortion. Please explain what that means. Years ago, the anti-choice movement tried to pass the Human Life Amendment, which would have declared abortion illegal at the federal level. And that didn't get anywhere. And so then they adopted a strategy of sort of uh, the death of a thousand cuts. And that was making abortion extremely difficult to get, forcing the closing down of clinics. The part about making it hell for women is, you know, if you close down a bunch of clinics and then you find out you have to drive, you know, 500 miles to get an abortion, and then you find that you have to stay overnight in this strange new place because you have to have a 24-hour or sometimes even a 48-hour or 72-hour waiting period because, of course, you don't know your little mind being a woman. Um, And then (laughs) they ratchet up the price by making you do unnecessary uh, ultrasounds and things like that. Before you know it, a $500 first trimester procedure is $1,500. Um, in all the ancillary costs. And don't forget, most women who have abortions now are lower income and for various complicated reasons. And most of them have children already. So they have to find someone to take care of their children. If they have work, they have to be able to take off. It makes the whole, the whole thing has become a great, big, complicated deal for women living in many, many parts of the country, the the South and the Midwest especially. Pro-choicers often warn that what Republicans want goes beyond a return to the bad old pre-Roe days. How could it be worse now than it was in the 50s? Well, isn't that interesting? Um, Because when abortion was illegal, which it was for um, about about half our history, our post-colonial history, people do forget, and I always feel I need to add, that abortion was legal, basically, when this country was founded. If the founding fathers had wanted to put in something constitutional about it, they could have done so, and they didn't, because it was simply an accepted procedure. It would be worse now because there's now a very organized political movement tied in completely with one of our two major parties that sees abortion as murder um, and would probably like to punish it for somebody along those lines. Maybe not for, they say not for the woman, but certainly for doctors. And the status of the fetus has been ratcheted up so high, much higher than it was pre-Roe. So in the past, if you lived in Kentucky, Mississippi, Missouri, North Dakota, South Dakota, or West Virginia, and other states which make abortion virtually impossible, in the past you would have to travel to California or New York. But now, now you write in your new column at The Nation, there's an alternative to traveling to a state where abortion is accessible, and that's misoprostol. Tell us about misoprostol. 
Well, this is the way in which we won't be revisiting the past. I mean, we all know about the coat hanger um, and other very dangerous methods that women used to use before Roe. And we're not going to see a big return to that, although there will be isolated cases and already have been. But what we will see a lot of and already seeing a lot of is the use of abortion pills. There are two of these, mifepristone and misoprostol, which used together, that's the regimen used in clinics to end an early pregnancy. Misoprostol alone is all, can also be used to end an early pregnancy. Um, and it's 75 to 85% effective. And the great thing about this is abortion pills are, are, are pretty safe. <laughs> uh, my sources, my medical sources tell me five to 10 times safer than Viagra. Okay. Um, and did you, know, did you know that Viagra is sold um, over the counter in the UK? No, Which is I kind didn't. of amazing. And you can find these abortion pills easily on the internet, although you'd better make sure that, you know, you're going to a reputable place. Although the FDA is trying, tries to prevent online pharmacies from selling them. But uh, women on waves and women helping women are two, women help women are two websites that are very reliable and will walk you through the procedure, like with tele, it's sort of a telemedicine kind of a thing. So I think we're going to see a lot of that. Women are already resorting to pills in places where they, you know, an abortion is legal and available, but it's too inconvenient and too expensive for them. And the state of California just passed the law that requires all the campuses of the University of California and the state university system to offer the abortion pill on campus. Women will not have to go off campus to find the Planned Parenthood office or a doctor to get the pill prescribed. That's 34 campuses in all, 750,000 enrolled students. And I'm sure the University of California is not going to be the last state to do this. Yeah, that's really amazing. Um, I hope they do community colleges as well, because that's a huge population. And let's talk here for a minute about Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood's clinic network removed itself from the federal program dedicated to providing birth control to low-income women. Remind us how that happened. Well, that was the great goal of the anti-choicers was to defund Planned Parenthood. And what that means is to not allow Planned Parenthood to be reimbursed with government funds like any other health care provider. So finally that has happened, and the Planned Parenthood said, okay, well, we're going to forego this estimated $60 million a year in reimbursements, which is amazing. That is a ton of money, and it's going to, you know, I fear that it will affect Planned Parenthood's ability to operate all its clinics a lot. I think some have already cut back. On the other hand, you suggest in your new column that the abortion pills, especially misoprostol, might have a political effect. In fact, you think it already has outside the United States. Yeah, you know, in Ireland, where, you know, the near total ban on abortion, which was in their constitution, was repealed in a 19, uh, sorry, a 2018 referendum. Uh, I've been told by uh, Irish 
feminists that self-managed abortion, which is the preferred term, don't say do-it-yourself abortion, say self-managed abortion, that it helped change people's minds because they saw that it couldn't be stopped. Katha Pollitt wrote about the abortion pill for her new column in The Nation. Read it at thenation.com. Thank you, Katha. Always great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me, John. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. The theme music for our podcast is by Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vandenhoevel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. For more principled progressive journalism from The Nation, you can subscribe to our print and digital magazine online at thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. With this special discount for Start Making Sense listeners, you can get digital access to all of our articles for less than $1.50 a month. You can have our print magazine delivered to you for just 60 cents an issue. Go to thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. You can find out more about the Start Making Sense podcast at thenation.com. And you can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.